to episode 18 of the Far Post podcast. My name is Marissa Lordanik. I'm joined as I always am by the best in the biz when it comes to women's football in this country, Sam Lewis, Anna Harrington and Angela Christian Wilkes. We've got lots to get into, so uh, in the iconic words of Shania Twain, let's go girls. Um, (laughs) I just wanted to sing Shania Twain on the pod. Anyway, let's start with another thing you love to see. You love to see it. Um, Sam, kick us off. What did you love to see this weekend? Well, everyone knows that I'm a big Sydney FC fan. Everybody knows that I'm a big fan of the sort of the larger narrative of this W League season, which is the emergence of young players. And so much to my delight, my love to see it this week was these two things becoming the perfect circle in, in terms of a Venn diagram. Uh, two young players, Taylor Ray and Rachel Lowe, scoring two absolute crackers for Sydney FC in their win over Newcastle. I was particularly chuffed to see Taylor Ray scores. A second goal for Sydney, a second ever professional goal. She now has as many goals as she has ACL tears. So that's wonderful for her, 19 years old, and she's probably going to be a natural successor to Teresa Polias in midfield. She's absolutely wonderful. I had a chat to her earlier this week as well, and she's an absolutely delightful human being. So two young Sydney players scoring bangers, just being awesome. You love to see it. Opta Sam with two goals, two, two ACL tests. Good God. But you did absolutely love to see them. Harrow, what did you love to see this weekend? Well, Marissa, I love to see Kirby in action. No, no, and that's spelled K-E-R-R-B-Y. It's the uh, combination of Fran Kirby and Sam Kerr. Um, just the one FAWSL match over the weekend. Um with Chelsea absolutely thumping Reading, but it was all about Frank Kirby. He scored four goals, um, just everywhere. Scored all sorts of goals as well, ones where she um, full defenders, one where she ran at the keeper, there was headers. It was really everything, to be honest. And the best thing about it was two of those goals were, um, were assists from our very own Sam Kerr. They've they've gelled beautifully since, um, yeah, since starting to play together and have been such a key part of Chelsea's rise to, the, to near the top this season again. Um, yeah, it's it's just great to see. One was a little flick header over the top and the other I really liked where Reading's defence switched off after um, an Aaron Cuthbert free kick and Kerr's been smart enough to keep it in play and whipped it in for Kirby to put away. So, yeah, the Kirby double act delivering, love to see it. You do love to see it, and I'm glad you've explained it because it's very much Kirby's more of a, a visual joke than an audio joke. But uh, we move on. Angela, what did you love to see this weekend? It will come as a surprise to no one that I loved seeing every six of Melbourne Victory's goals in the Melbourne Derby for the W League. Um, I also just want to mention you love to see Marissa not passing out at the game. Close call there. We got a couple of Zupa Dupas in her and she was fine. It was all good. But it was like stinking hot at CB Smith. What a shit ground. Anyway, but my favourite goal that will be tattooed into my mind is Lisa Devanna's. Um, and we just saw her sort of like, because we were sort of in line with her run um, and you saw her like turn Jenna and then she was coming towards us. It's like, oh, Lord, she coming. And then she just kept going she just you were waiting for the pass and she, she you know she did it all herself and then the finish oh it was so, beautiful it was wonderful so I absolutely absolutely love to see that um and yes I will so I've just been thinking about it a lot it was wonderful um and great to see Lisa back in action as well and just we'll definitely be I guess dissecting that game at great length I think on this pod today but yes you love to see it we did love to see it, and I really, really did love to see the sight of you coming towards me with two Zuper Dupers because Lord knows I needed them. Anyway, I loved this weekend the absolute banger fest, which was Brisbane v Canberra. We were treated to an absolutely spectacular goal from Katrina Gorry, completely expected from her right into the top bins, just completely, Sally James could do nothing about it. It was beautiful. And then 
because we we were treated to even more spectacular bangers. We had Grace Ma beating Georgina Worth, just catching her completely off her line, sending it from well, well outside of the area. It's not something that, uh, or rather, sorry, it is something that Grace Ma is also known for. There was a video going around of her doing basically the exact same shot during the MPLW season in New South Wales. So both goals were absolutely beautiful and they happened to occur in the very same game. So you absolutely love to see it. Let's carry on with Dub Chat. We had uh, four games. It was lots of good. It was a really fun round of Dub. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but I just felt like there were so many good games, so many good goals. It was just a really fun round of dub unless of course you were Melbourne City in which case it was no fun it was uh the opposite of fun so we need to we need to start there and we need to start with City. Harrow what did you make of City's performance in that game? They were just nowhere weren't they? I think we got a glimpse of how things could go for them with that performance against Brisbane Raw when they never really looked threatening and Brisbane could have put a heat past them and you'd like to have thought it was a one-off. They improved a bit in the next game, but uh, Jeff Hopkins, victory coach, going into this game, um, I got the impression from his pre-match presser that he was quietly confident, um, that he thought there were areas they could expose them. He highlighted the City back three um, going into that game as something that he thought suited his team, who have a lot of pace, obviously Lisa Devanna, Catherine Zimmerman in particular, I think this City team was probably ripe for the picking for a team that could convert and victory did just that. Like they, they probably could have had a couple more. They missed a couple sitters, but they just ripped them to shreds. They were better all over the park. Um, City had a couple of chances that they could have put away, but really it just fades into the distance when you look at how thoroughly beaten they were. Um, it's really concerning. Like City had in the past the – I guess the good city team has dismantled teams. I guess in the early days of this rivalry, they used to pretty much put victory to the sword, but I don't think they ever dismantled them the way victory did on the weekend. They just weren't anywhere near it. Like it was clearly two teams, one that looks destined to finals and who knows what else, and one that just looks like it's treading water. Um, the midfield is like a sieve. The defence, um, I'm sure we'll go into, but it lacks the quality of previous years and, I think above all, it just looks like a team that is lacking, I guess, those cultural touch points in terms of players that set the culture. We talked about this last week, who drive this team forward and they just folded like a 2 0 at half time. You're struggling, but you're by no means out of it. And then they've just collapsed. And I don't want to take too much away from Melbourne Victory because we'll go into them in a minute, but Victory were just sensational. Like they absolutely tore them to shreds, but. I don't know, even if you've got a team that's putting on absolute world of performance, you, I mean, you've got to have something to stop it getting to 6-0. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, and I guess the one good thing for them is they get to try and right their wrong pretty quickly, playing them again seven days after this thrashing. Sam? I think Rado Vitasic deserves some blame here. We were talking about this in the chat after the game. Um, In terms of the formation that he seems to be sticking with, it's a formation that he used last season and that worked very, very well for them last season because they had the players to execute that kind of formation and that kind of system. He's carried that system over to this new crop of players, including this back three, but it is absolutely not working for them. And one of the most glaringly obvious failures in that system is that when City do have possession and they're moving forward and they move into that back three sort of formation, Tory Tumeth, 19-year-old Tory Tumeth, who has not had a lick of W League experience before now, is the central defender there. It's no wonder that back three was absolutely torn apart by more experienced players because that's like if that's the person that you have there. Like I, I understand the need to continue with the system to to try and throw players into the deep end to get them to pick it up, but why would you not have someone like Jenna McCormick there who is meant to be a starting centre-back for the Matildas 
who's meant to be learning these kinds of systems on the go and someone who can actually probably absorb a lot more of the pressure that being working and operating in that sort of a back through system would require. And you saw, you know, the the ultimate effect of that over the course of the 90 minutes was that that back three slash five had to do so much running. They had to constantly run backwards because they were being found out, they were being exploited. And then by the end of the game, they would just run off their feet. And that's why we saw bang, 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 bang. Melbourne Victory scored so many goals so quickly in the final 15 minutes. So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens this weekend with the return Melbourne derby to see if he has actually learned a lesson from this. It's quite wrong. I'm going to be really interested to see what happens with City in terms of the changes they make or whether they make many changes. Um, they got Alex Jidiak on the park um, and they'd be hoping to get more minutes out of her. We know that today they announced a new signing, Nor Ekhoff, the Norwegian, who should add a bit more grit and defensive capability and intercepting to that midfield. But might be a bit of too little too late. Their goal difference is already out at minus seven after three games. They've just got the, the one point from three games. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tough task to turn things around from here. Jumping in, like off what you said, Sam, the system that is requiring them to, you know, run a bunch. I just, I don't, I'm not very, I don't know much about coaching. I don't know much about football, but I will say that why would you do that for with a squad that hasn't been getting minutes? Like I know everyone was really excited to see Chidiak come on the field and it's wonderful to see her back. And I think that she might, she's definitely going to bring a lot of quality to that midfield and a lot of the smart decision-making and the like, I guess, forward plays that they might need to actually service their um, front line. But in terms of like the defense as well, like I, I'm almost certain I've talked about this before on the pod, but, the fitness isn't going to be there. And so I don't know why. It just seems like a risk as well in terms of injury. And I don't know, it just doesn't make any sense to me to do that. Um, just looking at the months, the previous months that a lot of these players have had, as well as the quarantine, like so many of them have had to quarantine. And I, I do wonder if that's a little bit of like complacency in terms of running with this system, because obviously there's been this these huge changes to the league. Someone's sitting back and thinking, we don't, we do have, yeah, they do have good players. We have good players um, and no one else is going to have players of that standard. I don't know. But every every team knew they were going to lose Matildas. I think that's something that's important to keep in mind here. Sydney were going to lose quality players. Melbourne Victory lost Laura Brock, who was one of the most key players in the league for any team for the past two seasons. Um, Brisbane less affected. Sydney over the last... Um, I guess year have lost Caitlin Foyle, Chloe Legazzo, Alana Kennedy. Like all these teams knew they were going to lose players. And I know that we've spoken about the fact that um, we didn't get the MPLW season in Victoria. That didn't stop victory. They went and banked on talent that they knew were quality, like players that they'd brought into preseason before that they'd trialed that maybe just didn't quite make the cut given they were bringing in some you know, like your Darian Jenkins or you had Natasha Dowie there. Like there was some quality there internationals-wise already. They've banked on talent that they know are good, that they thought could get up to the level. And just based on the early exposure, that plus retaining a lot of the squad that just seemed well-drilled and they're hungry, it just seems like two completely different scenarios. And victory seemed well-prepared for the challenges that awaited this season. And City, unfortunately, this stage, what results show is they weren't. And this is what is so baffling to me about Melbourne City this season. It's that they just didn't seem to have the foresight uh, that all the Matildas were going to leave. Regardless of corona, coronavirus, they must have known that they were going to lose so many of their players to Europe. I've written about this for my, because, for my column for The Guardian this week because it is just really so frustrating, you know, that they – this their performances so far this season, the team that they have put together, it's the kind of team of a club who did not know what they were doing. And the other, I think, worthy contrast here is is Western Sydney. Western Sydney Wanderers lost almost their entire starting eleven as well. The same starting eleven that got them to the top four. Only Courtney Nevin is the player who is really hung around, who was a regular starter for them last season. But Western Sydney 
don't look anywhere near as bad as Melbourne City do because they have been drip-feeding players over the course of the last couple of seasons, bringing squad players in, bringing train-ons in, making sure that these players are up to speed, knowing that eventually there is going to be some sort of process that is going to require them to step up and to step into the void left behind by players who've moved elsewhere. But Melbourne City just didn't seem to anticipate that, which is just bizarre to me. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be interesting to see like how much they can arrest this because you can't, can't be copping another loss like that. Like it's you it has to be a one off. Um yeah, and it, it is interesting, Sam, that Western Sydney um comparison, I think, where they've cleverly I think pinched the right people, say out of a Newcastle or got players in and said, you know, you can get more game time or you can take your game to the next level, or they went and got a jo- Georgie Yomandal who, you know, had been injured, that sort of thing. The other one I'd like to compare it to is Melbourne Victory because I think we should actually take the opportunity to laud them for what they've done. Um, and I alluded to it at the start of this discussion. As much as City really delivered an F-grade performance, Victory just looked like something else. Like I think something we flagged in the preview to this season was could Victory be a bit more multidimensional, more unpredictable, find more avenues to go without Natasha Dowie. And I think this game answered it. They're a bit wasteful against Brisbane Raw. It's funny how Brisbane Raw games do this. Um, but I thought they showed just how potent they can be. Lisa Devanna obviously provided that incredible spark. But, you know, players like Melina Ayres and you've got Ali Longo, Amy Jackson, they all know how to hit the score sheet. Um, I don't want to just name all these players, but I love seeing Catherine Zimmerman actually get on the board as well. Like, Bar Zimmerman... All these players that scored on the weekend know how to do it at W League level. They've done it. They've maybe done it in more spectacular ways in the past or inconsistently in the past, but this is a team that just knew how to get the job done and you didn't know where the attacks were going to come from. You didn't know if it would be, um, I guess, like Elisa Devanna with a Maisie run or Kyra Cooney-Cross trying to pick out players or just that sheer sort of hustle that a player like Amy Jackson has um, and that sort of will to make things happen. As a side note, I think Amy Jackson's WLA career is one of the great underrated careers in um, Australian football. As a one of the few players who's carved out, I think, a really stellar career in Australian football without ever getting a Matildas cap. She sticked over more than 100 games, just add something there. And you could tell what it meant to her when she scored that goal as well. But yeah, they just look like something a bit different and a bit special and something that can maybe catch quite a few teams on the hop. What do you guys reckon? And just looking at the names of who scored on the weekend, it's sort of like I I don't know how to describe it, but it's like an a nostalgic highlights reel or something like that. Because as you said, Anna, we've seen all these players score before, but it's just been a little bit here, a little bit there. But they were just like, we're going to do it all, and we're going to do it today, and it's going to be fantastic, and they're all going to be brilliant goals. And I think also as a victory fan. Um, it's really exciting to see them do something new just because, like, love Tats Dowie, but the it was like a f- getting a little bit formulaic at the end there and you could sort of, yeah, predict how things were going to go. Always wonderful to see her score goals and to see them win games because of her. But, yeah, just the thinking, oh, this – like, where can this go? What are we going to see from Melina Ayers? And, oh, just a shout-out to her cheeky little, like, high-five <laughs> celebration to the um, Victory Active support that were down the end where she scored the goal. But anyway, yes. So I'm really excited and I feel, like, reborn watching this Victory side. Maybe it's just the adrenaline or the heat stroke that is probably still lingering on. But, yeah, I'm I'm super pumped. And also um, I wanted to give a sh- – like I mentioned to Polly Doran, who's been one of those players. Um, She didn't – I think she only got a couple of like one appearance last season for for victory, but she's played like two 90-minute games or thereabouts, Um, and I think she did really well on the weekend and is an example of one of those players who has been in and around the squad and is now getting that opportunity to step up and to just slot right in. And Jeff Hopkins is obviously very familiar with what she can do and has that confidence in her. So, yeah, 
Sam, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say as the only non-Buck fan on this podcast. I totally agree. I mean, I, they were they were outstanding. Um, I, it's yeah, like as much as we want to go in at City, and they do deserve it. I mean, victory. They they really uh, like any team that victory it, on that day came up against. I think would have lost. Okay. You know, they were so so good. And what I Angela touched on it there. What really impressed me the most was that they have clearly found the answer to the Tats Dowie problem. That just watching that Melbourne victory game and that Melbourne victory performance was really inspiring, and it made me really really excited for the sort of the second half of the season, particularly as teams like Brisbane, like Canberra start to really click and really ramp up and find their find their rhythm because that Melbourne victory side coming up against the kind of side that we think Brisbane could be, for example, would be an absolutely cracking grand final, don't you think? Oh, and if you could have either of those two teams break their championship duck in that game, Great for the journos amongst us. Fully, yeah, fully. Also just wanted to say thank you to Western Sydney for taking Kyra in, nurturing her, giving her minutes, helping her develop her game and then giving her back to us because she's like been, like I'm loving every minute of what she's doing Um, and I'm feeling quite smug because I I said that in my victory preview that she'd like be the midfielder to watch and I think that's paying off. I mean, it's early days. I shouldn't get ahead of myself, but thanks, Western Sydney. Love your work. I think there's also a bit of credit to give to this um, back line as well. It's really hard to, as we mentioned with our city chat, to revamp a back line when you lose senior players. Last season, victory had Laura Brock, Jenna McCormick, Emily Mangas, hugely experienced players. Um, they also tended to use Leah Prevotelli quite a bit at fullback, um, as well as Angie Beard. Reverted more so to the back four, but it's the changes. Like Kayla Morrison, first season in the W League, albeit had her time in Sweden. Uh, Claudia Bunge, first season in the W League. You mentioned Polly Doran before, Angela, and we know what Angie Beard brings. But with Gabby Garten there as well, it's hard to put together a new defence for a new season. And I think it's a real credit to the work that they've clearly put in over pre-season to try and solidify this defence. Um, and also that they've used a back four a lot and protected it with Longo and Jackson, something that City could probably learn from, um, just to, I guess, screen them a little bit. And they've got two clean sheets from two games. So, yeah, that and that gives you just such a great platform to build off um, going forward. It's really positive signs for victory, but I think we all will be uh, keeping our eyes on the game on Sunday at Epping Stadium to see if there is a response from City or if victory just double down and pants them again. But um, we spent a lot of time on the Melbourne Derby, so let's move on to some other W League talking points. I think it was we kind of alluded to it with City in the sense of can they arrest this slump? Is the timing going to kind of run out for them? A similar question can kind of be posed for Brisbane. So we all had them as, you know, likely to featuring finals in our preview episode but so far they've scored one goal they've got three points and they're they're just not showing I suppose the the kind of football that we thought we would see from them so I'd like to hear all your answers on this but I'll I'll start it with Sam could Brisbane slow start bite them in the bum later in the season I disagree with the premise there, Marissa, because I think that Brisbane Raw have actually been playing the the type of football that we expected. Uh, The games that they've played so far, they have been really dominant. You know, it's just that they haven't scored the goals. That's the only statistic that's missing from their performances so far. They've absolutely dominated things like shots and chances created and things like possession as well, perhaps not so much against Canberra, but definitely against Melbourne City. It's just that they haven't been able to convert it. And so they're sort of confirming, I think, the preseason theories we had about Brisbane, that based on the fact that they're the team that do have the largest number of Matildas players um, and also quite a few uh, emerging national team players as well, sort of complementing them in and around the scene, they are looking really dominant. They just can't, they just can't convert the, their chance. I just don't know what it is. They just don't have their shooting boots on. 
Um, I think the loss of Tamika Yallop is is sort of a tough one in that regard. I'm not really sure how long she's out for, but she didn't make an appearance against Canberra. I think she really was needed in that game. You know, she's the kind of player who can crack a game open like that, and she works so, so, so hard. But that's sort of why as well, you know, in, in the Canberra game, those were two sides that I think were very um, evenly matched. They were quite evenly balanced. And that's why they, you know, the game required two absolute crackers for either team to get anything out of it. You know, that the unbelievable Grace Marr goal from almost halfway and Katrina Gorey's first goal since 2017. You know, those were pretty rare sorts of things to happen for both of those teams to get a point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I've been, I've been really impressed with Brisbane so far. I've been really impressed um, with uh, Mariel Hecker. I think she's been really fun, really busy. I mentioned her in the last episode. I've been really impressed with uh, Jamila Rankin as well, the junior Matilda young fullback who has been really, really um, – she doesn't look out of place really And considering her first start was last season at the very, very, very end and she played uh, I think a grand total of maybe like 60 minutes. I think she's slotted into this team really beautifully and and so has Winona Heatley on the other side, the other young fullback. So I think across the park, Brisbane are looking really, really good. It's just that they need to start converting their chances, you know, and Emily Gilnick, I think something's going on with Emily Gilnick. I think we need to talk about that now. Yeah, I think Emily Gilnick was, well, she was my tip for golden boot based on her form in Sweden, um, but I think she kind of sums up the Raw's problems with conversion. Um, there's been a couple where she's been unlucky, like when Tegan Micah made a ripping save, but one of the chances where she like just smacked it into the bar from a position where it was harder to miss than score, I reckon. You just go, this is a player that I don't know if it's – I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know why she's struggling to find form. I, I do think with some of these players, the hotel quarantine, and we know she's already been in it twice over this sort of past 12 months. I don't know if that plays a factor in terms of losing your touch. Um, at victory, she was sensational. I think she really slotted into their team beautifully and made her chances count there. And she seemed to do the same thing in Sweden. Um, but it's just not clicking for her at the moment. And I think she kind of sums up this team where if, she can click, then the goal should start to flow a bit. But the moment I think she's almost looking, I think just off the boil. Like it's, she's lacking that. I think one thing that's always stood out in Emily Gilnick's game is that confidence to just back her speed and burn players. And I don't know if she's trying to be more technical or if she's, what she's trying to do, but she's faffing around with the ball a lot more, I'm finding. Like she's trying to sort of twist and turn around players rather than just backing the things that have made her a really good player. So I'm not sure if it's a confidence thing or a fresh out of quarantine thing, but she's just not quite looking like the player we uh, we know and love when she's at her best. I'm hypothesising this with completely no evidence, but I do wonder maybe her going over to Sweden and having that fantastic run, going back to the psychological side of things, she feels like she needs to come back and prove that she's, yeah, developed something else or developed another aspect of her play because um, I I guess, yeah, coming back to the W League might be a drop in the quality of the team. Well, yeah, a quality of the competition that she's in um, and that might take a hit for the confidence as well. Again, no evidence, but... So it's almost like she's... It's almost like she's trying a bit too hard, even. Mm, over, like, like overcompensating. Yeah, exactly. Because she did have a really great season with Vizio in Sweden when she joined. She scored a whole bag full of goals for them. But I remember her, her saying that, you know, part of the reason why she went to Europe is because she did want to add different kinds of elements to her game. Um, and one of the reasons why she was not a particular success at Bayern was because they were asking her to do things that she was naturally not that inclined to do. And so part of the reason for her move to Sweden was because they would give her the kind of freedom to be the player that she is, you know, this really, really athletic, really strong, fast-paced, um, sort of like bursting physical player as opposed to, not necessarily as opposed to, but more so than the sort of the, the tight ball control technical sort of thing. And so maybe because of that sort of that larger um discourse I guess all those larger those wider expectations in and around Gilnick's game she's perhaps come back and figured that she needs to show something for all of that experience she needs to show that she has 
you know, added bits here and there to to her game as a result of those experiences. But maybe that's just adding, it's just piling the pressure on herself when really she just needs to do what she does best, the thing that she's been doing for the last couple of years in the W League, and she'll be a hit. Well, Sam, it's spot on. Like, I think something that applies to whatever you do in life, whether you're a pro athlete or you want to be really good at anything, is you want to work on your weaknesses, but you should never forget what your strengths are because if you can improve your weaknesses, you can get up to a certain level. But if you focus on them so much that you start to drift away or pull yourself away from your strengths, then you lose what makes you so special in the first place. I think if she can sort of get back to those basics, then she'll be um, better for it. Um, And the other thing I did like about Brisbane was uh, bringing Rosie Sutton into the fray. I thought it was really good for them to have a proper number nine. I love to make Yallop as a player, um, but I love her as a midfielder bursting forward with those great forward runs she can do and working with a nine. Um, I thought adding Sutton in, though she didn't score, and, you know, she's she's a player who's been around for the league for a while, knows how to find goals, knows how to hold up the ball, is of that bit more direct. I think it just added a bit of structure that Brisbane lacked, and it might take them a bit of time to click, but I think it's something they should stick with. Um, I think it will also ease a bit of the pressure on someone like an Emily Gilnick to not have to be almost a hybrid forward. I think if you can try and play with actual nine and Gilnick can maybe create a couple of assists, I think that can also be good for getting your confidence up. Um, But, yeah, that was something I quite liked about Brisbane and hope they'll stick with because I think they looked a more balanced team against Canberra by having a, a genuine number nine involved. We'll, we'll carry on with a bit more dub chat. So we finally got our first look at Perth Glory. They lost 1-0 to Adelaide United. But what were our first impressions of this Perth team? I mean, I, I thought like it was the performance of a side that clearly haven't played together for very long. You know, we expected that. This is a team that sim- sort of similar to City had to be almost cobbled together at the last minute. A lot of them perhaps didn't even think that they would be playing W League this season as a result of border closures. A lot of them over in WA hadn't played any NPL, um, and so they probably weren't really anticipating being thrown into the deep end all of a sudden with, like, what, four weeks, five weeks' worth of preseason? But even saying that, I think there were glimmers of promise from a couple of the players. Um, There were some good moments from Perth, and they were, I mean, ultimately they were let down by a penalty. You know, they could have taken a point from that game quite easily. Um, you know, obviously I wasn't at the, at the ground and so I didn't know whether that penalty was accurate or not. I, I, from the camera angle, it seemed as though Natasha Rigby got the ball um, rather than the player. But, you know, that's I think that's good early signs for a team that has basically just come into this very, very um, rapidly and had to try and put together some sort of plan and some sort of squad. Um, in order to participate so yeah and I think um, as well like I sort of expected that Perth would lose this first game because they've had that that rough trot coming into the season Um, but I think this season in the dub there's no clear like wooden spoon perhaps in contrast to previous seasons which is really exciting and Perth could very well make some sort of comeback. I don't think they're going to make the top four, but I think that they're still going to be able to compete in some way. Just unfortunately, they will have to <laughs> gel a little bit more and that's already time lost in, yeah, the W League. I just wanted to comment briefly on, as it is, the summer of Kote Rojas. Um, I just want to direct our listeners to a great video that Adelaide United put up of what would have been, I reckon, a real, uh, it might have even beaten Lisa Devanna's effort for goal of the round slash season if she'd pulled it off. Um, just, it's right up there. Like, we'll post a link to it on socials, but just this incredible goal where she gets the ball just inside the attacking half, goes past, like, multiple defenders, like, just watching it now, I think it's five or six that she gets past and then just goes off balance and uh, puts the finish over the bar. But, yeah, it would have been a real moment for the the summer of Cote Rojas, alas, not to be. Um, but also promising for Adelaide that they got three points on the board. They were probably unlucky the way they fell away against Canberra and that Michelle Heyman absolutely turned it on. 
I think they would have been really stinging after that. And I think they probably had multiple chances where they could have put away the game. As you said, Sam, it probably came down to that somewhat fortuitous penalty call, but they probably should have actually won the game regardless. Um, So I think it's good for Adelaide that they've got some points on the board and they can start to really try and kick on from here. I think we also need to mention that um, Emily Condon's penalty just went straight through the net. Um, I'm not calling it peak dub because, of course, this happened in the dub. Like, it, it really do be like this in, you know, the wonderful world that is the W League. So that's that's basically dub chat. The other game that we didn't really touch on was uh, Sydney beating Newcastle 2-1, but we did mention it in the Love to See. It's looking ahead to next week. We've got another four games on Thursday night. It's Perth v Adelaide again, and as the uh, Adelaide social media person said, this time it's Perthanal. Um, on Saturday we've got a Sydney derby, which is going to be very exciting Sunday where back again with a Melbourne derby. So that'll be really, really uh, exciting to watch. And we round everything out with Newcastle taking on Brisbane. So now that you know when the games are, it's a, a very good time to announce that we're doing our first The Far Post giveaway. And we're very excited. We've been absolutely blown away with everyone's support over the last couple of months that we've been doing this podcast so we'd like to give back in a in a very small way so we present to you the far totes it makes sense visually and we will post it on our social medias but basically we've got some tote bags from the one man merch machine that we would like to give away to a couple of our listeners and what you have to do to win these bad boys is take a photo of yourself or your mates, or whatever it is, at Dub at the Pub. We understand that some of you can't get to the pub, but if you're watching the game at home and getting into the Dub at the Pub spirit, then we will absolutely accept it. We got a photo, actually, from a listener, Ben, in the UK, who basically said, I'm in lockdown, but I'm still, you know, getting in the Dub at the Pub spirit. I've got my Perth Glory gear on, and he tagged us in it. So that's the kind of thing we're looking for here. So... Tag us in your photos on any social media, hashtag it dub at the pub, and then the four of us will figure out a way to pick a winner, probably some sort of random generator thing, so things are fair. Just to be like a total mum about the situation, I think it should just be (laughs) one entry per photo. So if there's four of you in the photo, you can't all repost that same photo, just to make it fair. But that's all. That's Good stuff. Any other terms and conditions that I have forgotten in my... Australia. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Shipping speto, friends. You you know this. So, for now, we will keep it to Australian residents only, but hopefully this is the beginning of more giveaways and also potential far post merch because we know people have asked about that, but um, we'll see. So, We'll do a tweet and we'll do a Facebook post and we'll do an Instagram post just, I suppose, explaining that a lot more concisely than I've just done. But um, dub at the pub, get into it. Bonus points if you can tie in hashtag dogs of soccer Twitter as well. If you've got a dog that you can dress up in a, a kit or a scarf, something, you can have a dog posing in front of a pub screen with the W League on it, absolutely 10,000 bonus points. That's my only requirement. Dub at the pub with a pub. Yes! <laughs> That was an emphatic yes. (laughs) But, yes, like I said, we will put in a a clearer set of rules out on social media, but we really can't wait to see you guys get around it, getting to the pub, watching some dub. But let's move along. Let's get into some FAWSL chat. So we had one game of FAWSL. As we mentioned, Chelsea beat Reading 5-0. It was the Frank Kirby show. It was excellent. Uh, we had a little bit of other news relating to our Tillies in England. Both Van Egmond and Kennedy made their loan deals permanent at West Ham and Tottenham respectively, so they'll be continuing on for at least the rest of the season. But the the real FAWSL talking point this week has been Dubai Gate. So we we need to talk about that because it basically 
took over the entirety of Woso Twitter for a large amount of time. And it's still ongoing. It's not just that it's taken over, you know, Woso Twitter for the last couple of days. Like this is something that I think is going to have some sort of longer term effects on this league and on the community more generally. You know, one of the sort of interesting um, conversations to come out of this is that a lot of people who've been in and around the women's game for a while, particularly in England, are saying that this is really the first fucking plane. Sorry. Just for anyone wondering, that's what the hold music was for last (laughs) week. Sam had to wait out. I, I live under a flight path for anybody who, who does not know this already. Um, and so every now and then, particularly towards the end of the evenings, all the for some reason all of the planes decide to take off within minutes of each other right over my house. And so I'm having to pause all of my points all the time. Anyway, whatever. Um, so... What yes, yeah, so one of the the sort of the interesting talking points to come out of this is that a lot of people are thinking that this is the first real us and them kind of moment that the FAWSL has faced. You know, these are players who have come from semi-professional amateur environments. And so by virtue of that, I think there's been an assumption that they are not as liable perhaps to becoming the kind of um, privileged, entitled um naive sorts of players that we see in the men's game, the kind of players who disregard the community in that has supported them for so long and the community from which they've come. But this is really one of those moments where we've seen decisions by some players that just seem to completely go against all these things, all these standards that we have held these players to. Um you know, but in saying that, you know, I've I've struggled with this moment, I think, because on the one hand, I do feel like players should be held to higher standards because they are representatives of clubs and also they are in a very privileged position and have quite a large platform and should be, be ensuring that they're responsible with that. But at the same time, I do feel like women players are held to higher standards than men's when it comes to things like this. And I wonder whether we are not allowing them to fail in quite the same ways that we allow men to. Um, you know, there were, was an article by Barney Roney um, at The Guardian who pointed out that, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo and a whole bunch of other dudes also went to Dubai. But where's the outrage when it comes to them? You know, they're sort of just expected to to do that. And maybe, I mean, maybe, and maybe that's the thing, maybe the men's game has sort of reached a, a point of morality where we just accept that there are shit people in it and we just move on. Whereas the women's game, it sort of comes from a different space and it has um, kinds of, I guess, ethical principles built within it that means that moments like this are more glaring um, and we don't quite know how to, how to respond to them in the same way. So, yeah, I mean, that was not a recap at all. But everybody who's listening to this knows what happened. You know, we had a, a number of um, of English players or England-based players making holiday trips, business trips to Dubai um, in a travel corridor. Technically, they were legal trips according to the rules that were in place in England at the time. But they were pretty, I mean, it's, it's pretty well understood that they were shitty decisions, that they were morally questionable trips, particularly because they brought COVID back to them. And that's the reason that we saw so many games cancelled over the weekend. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to sort of hand off to, to Harrow and Angela for some more thoughts here. But yeah, I mean, it's a complicated moment. And I, I think it's a it's an important sort of touch point for um, where the game is, is at now and how far it's come. And I'd be interested to know sort of what you think about where it goes from here. Yeah, I think you've actually summed it up well there, Sam. I think a lot of um, the real frustration, and I don't want to say outrage because I think that diminishes the failings that are going on in England, especially at the moment, is England is in an absolute state. Like the coronavirus situation in the UK, can't really put it any way other than it's fucked. Like it's getting worse and worse. Um, there's a reason why they've put in these restrictions, these different tiers, because it's just out of control. And 
for one reason, I think the fact that the men's games were still going while the women's games had a Christmas break, I think contributed to the fact that there's not been the outrage because the men's players in the last couple of weeks haven't been able to go because they've been playing. Um, but I think there's just this almost feeling of betrayal. Like, for one thing, you if you are living in any of these areas, you can't go more than probably 5Ks from your house if it's anything like our Melbourne lockdown. So to see players just go, oh, no, that means I can get on a flight to Dubai, people go, well, you're just taking the piss. Like, how do you not see that you're doing something wrong? I think in terms of the women's football community, I don't think I've ever seen it so united in terms of the utter condemnation of what these players have done. I think because we saw the season cut short last time as well due to coronavirus, there's been so much work done to keep it up and running um, so many people are depending on this season going. Like it's not just other players, like it's coaches, it's freelance journalists, it's people who are involved in curating pictures. Like there's a lot of people whose livelihoods in a really, really difficult time uh, depending on a lot of these games going ahead. So there's that level of selfishness in terms of the league potentially being compromised. But we know that in terms of some of the cup competitions and um, other leagues in England that have been stopped and people can't keep going, I think there's that frustration in terms of potentially compromising the whole season. We've seen that clearly teams like Chelsea um, or Tottenham, who haven't had players go, are livid about this because players like Sam Kerr have spent their Christmas break in their house. We talked about this last week. Peniel Harder, Magda Eriksson would have loved to have gone and visited their families um, on the continent but weren't able to do it. So I think for players to see... People who should be on the same side as them with this stuff, who should all be pulling in the same direction, just throw it back in their faces like this by, I don't know, what, for the sake of a beach trip? For the sake of getting your summer tan? Like, the state of the UK and the, the, state, the precarious state of football at the moment, it, I, I just think people can't believe that people would be so selfish as to potentially put it all at risk. Um not to mention the other side of things, which is you're either bringing coronavirus back into the country or you're potentially, if you get it on the plane, taking it over there and infecting workers or spreading it amongst people in another country. Like There's just, I think, so many layers of selfishness and I just don't think too many people are standing for it. I've got quite a few thoughts, so this might be a little bit jumbled, but I think... Um, it's sort of a two-pronged issue because there's the discussion around what we expect from these players and how that fits in the context of the women's game and um, gender. And then there's also the response from the F, like the FA and the clubs as well. And I think for, just for what I, what I think about it is, a, you know, as soon as people do get a certain level of entitlement or privilege, they will probably there will be some people who take advantage of that, unfortunately. Um, But we, like the FA had an opportunity to actually nip this in the bud and we saw a lot of double standards and sort of weird decisions being made around it. So Manchester City got to have their game postponed because they didn't have their strongest starting squad or whatever and that is an obvious contrast to what happened to Bristol who had to bring up academy players when their team was affected by COVID from people not travelling to Dubai for a nice sunny trip. Um, And I suppose as well, going back to, again, jumbled, going back to what you said, Sam, about the – is it just an indication of women's football – growing and getting more professionalised that that entitlement and privilege is going to grow and we're just going to expect like sort of, oh, we expect it now from women's players in the future or from here on out. I don't know, but I feel like for – it's a bigger – it's a massive conversation as well in terms of the culture around women's sport more generally, but a lot of people are drawn to women's sport because it has a different culture to – men's sport and it has different things and it often feels like there are things that are valued more so or um, brought to the foreground a little bit more in terms of social justice issues and um, equality and that sort of thing and I don't know I feel like that yeah the FA missed an opportunity to actually set a precedent where they put those things into action and they actually 
I don't know, make just decisions for those clubs that have been affected by this. I don't know if I tied those things together very well, but yeah, um, it definitely, there's the individual actions and then there's the structural response. Both are piss poor, but I really would have expected a lot more from the FA and what's happened. And I can see why so many players are just across and so many journos and people around the game are so upset by this and should rightly be demanding answers into why these decisions have been made. Yeah, I think it's understandable why teams are furious as well. Like Chelsea now have to fit in this rescheduled clash with Manchester City through no fault of their own. They already had a hectic schedule between their various competitions. And it's been made worse. And it's the same for teams like I think Aston Villa have a bunch of FAWSL fixtures banked up now. And yeah, and it's the fact that it's through I guess selfishness from some of these players that not only are they, and I know in the Arsenal situation, it's like this, not only are they um, sidelined because of COVID, but also you're putting teammates, staff members, coaches at risk or having to self-isolate because of your actions here. Um, So so many people are affected. It's such a ripple effect um, from one person's poor decision. And something else that I think has really stood out in terms of why people are so angry is I think people hoped or expected, at the very least hoped there would be some sort of fronting up an apology. Um, Casey Stoney sort of did that on behalf of Manchester United as an organisation that said we weren't good enough to, you know, in terms of letting players go on breaks. Don't know if she was expecting players to go to Dubai, but either way she's taken that responsibility. I think people would have appreciated if, some players actually fronted up because effectively they've been, I don't think that the club should be naming these people or anything like that. You know, there's medical records, these sorts of things. There's reasons why media can't name players, even if they know who they are. But I think some people, given there's been photos that have leaked or, you know, Katie McCabe's had a photo come out or there's been photos of other players that have been circling social media, I don't think it would go astray to, front up and apologise. These are players that do like to talk about how they're role models, do like to talk about having a positive influence on young people and on society. And I think if you if they'd actually fronted up, they might have – I don't think it would have necessarily stopped the anger, but I think it's kind of added to that feeling that some clubs get one treatment, other clubs get a different one, some players get protected, not everyone does. I mean, if you feel like you were entitled to go on a trip to Dubai, surely you can front up and say it. Like, I think that's the vibe that's been coming out. If you felt like you were in the right doing this, then are you going to defend your decision or are you going to come out and apologise? Like, there's just been this radio silence. And I think that's sort of contributed because when there's silence, everything can come to the fore. Like, rumours come in, people guess who players are, people speculate, and I think it all just festers and makes the situation worse. Um, So I think there maybe is an element of that too. It's definitely the, it was fucking one of yours at the moment. <laughs> it's an interesting point you made, Hara, about the different kinds of treatment that some clubs are getting versus others. And one of the things that I'm going to be really interested to watch is the actual sort of logistical uh, consequences of this because these games have to be played at some point and there have been other games and other competitions that have had to be postponed as well. And that is going to have a much more significant effect on clubs that don't have particularly deep benches, clubs that are already suffering with a lot of injuries to their starting players, that we're probably going to see the bigger clubs, the clubs that contain a lot of the players who did go to Dubai, those are going to be the clubs that are able to weather the storm of a backlog of fixtures. Um, So it's just sort of another iteration of the larger idea that coronavirus has really exacerbated a lot of the inequalities that have been really deeply embedded in football more generally. And I'm really worried, actually, that some of the smaller clubs, some of the clubs that haven't been able to afford, you know, the great physios, the great medical facilities, that those are going to be the clubs that really suffer, not just in the sort of the more immediate kinds of fixture problems, but much later down the track as well. I think one thing that's really important to note when we are talking about how people have responded to the, I guess, breaches by men's players, because we have seen it in the Premier League in the last couple of weeks, parties and those sorts of things, gatherings. 
And the Dubai thing is the the fury coming from their fellow players, their fellow pros in the women's game. Like a lot of this anger, like we saw the Emma Mitchell tweet about, you know, some rules for some, some for and some for others. And then clearly there's been a fair few snarky sort of uh, sub-tweets coming from Chelsea players as well. A lot of likes of, you know, what journalists have had to say coming from different players and coaches too. Um, Tanya Oxby and Emma Hayes publicly as coaches questioned some of, one, the decisions and two, the actions of players and I guess emphasised the responsibility that they all have to keep the game running. I think part of the anger is it is just coming from inside the community. It's not just external blow-ups. Like the actual women's football community is so mad about this. I think they all thought we've got something so precious that we're trying to hold on to, which is football and playing, and it's something we're so privileged to do. Um, and I don't know if that contributes to players maybe being entitled and some of them, you know, these players who have decided to go being entitled and thinking we have the right to a holiday because they've been able to keep doing their work when so many other people have not been able to. But I think just all of these things come together have just, yeah, it, it feels like it's really divided. In one sense, it's divided the women's football community, but in the other sense, so many people feel united in terms of their anger and their frustration and I think that's been the difference. Uh, it's it's coming internally, not just from the outside. We didn't mention it, but I think the um, Gen BT yeah. situation is I I can understand why Ars- like other Arsenal players are so fucking furious. Mm. Um, at whoever went. Not even Arsenal though, like Manchester City as well. Like Steph Horton's husband has motor neuron disease. Yeah. You know, what if Steph took that home? That's a really good point. Yep. And there'd be so many people who have vulnerable family members that we don't even know about. Exactly. Or partners or like there'd be staff at the club. Yeah, absolutely. In vulnerable situations. Like it's just just a total lack of consideration for anyone else for the sake of getting your tan on. Mm. Dubai sucks as well. Can we include this bit? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the English is like starved of nice beaches, so they think that Dubai is fun. I I don't get it. Like, there's people who love it, but it's not. Mm. And I think a note to end this chat on is uh, the UAE has since been uh, removed from the UK's travel corridor list, and arrivals now need to isolate for ten days from four AM Tuesday. Um, as far as I go as a Melbourneian or as an Australian, surely some of these players are going to need to isolate for a fair bit regardless. Um, so hopefully a similar policy happens to some of those that recently came back. Either way, no more trips to Dubai for now for anyone. As I say, yeah, I don't think anyone else is going to Dubai, but I don't think this is the end of this, I suppose, wider discussion. But um. It's the end of the discussion here. So let's move on to some regular scheduled programming. It's time for the boot. Sam, what is getting the boot this week? So sticking with shitty English people doing shitty things, which are really avoidable, my boot this week goes to Phil Neville. Uh, Phil Neville, if anyone listening to the pod doesn't know, uh, was, was the Lioness's coach. Um, he had agreed to stand down following the appointment of Serena Weigman, the Dutch woman, to take over from him um, at the end of the year. But Phil was still granted the great privilege of leading Team Great Britain to the upcoming Olympics, which would have been super, super fun. We've been talking about all the kinds of players who could be in and around that Team GB squad, all pod, like from the very, very beginning. This has been the whole premise. And yet poor old Philip just doesn't really seem to give a shit because now he's been linked with Inter Miami, the new MLS team that is run by good old pal David Beckham. Uh, He's, uh, for all intents and purposes, being lined up to now lead Inter Miami uh, in the MLS. He's most likely going to drop his uh, Team GB aspirations. And, you know, we, I think, have mentioned on this pod before that we're not the, the greatest fans of Phil, and I think now we can emphatically say that he's a, a bit of a dropkick. And I think more generally, 
you know, this is another another um, this is another example of men failing upwards. It's another example of men who are inadequate at the things that they are doing, being given a leg up because they are part of a structure of legacy that ensures that they stay in and around the game. Um, it's no accident that Phil Neville's basically his entire managerial career has come as a result of his relationships with people in various clubs, um, including, you know, his, his stint at Manchester United, his stint at Valencia, his stint at Salford, and now his stint at Miami. And I, I think uh, Jonathan Liu at The Guardian sort of summarised it quite well when he said, the defining motif of Neville's coaching career to date is a series of doors being held open for him, a path that ironically enough would not exist for a woman of his equivalent talent. And this is a theme I think that is more generally affecting uh, the game, but specifically when it comes to the growth of the women's game, because we are seeing a number of men who are flocking to women's football now that it's becoming more popular and more lucrative. And I feel I think is a, a test case for um, how badly that can that can sort of turn out um, when that sort of legacy framework and history is relied upon. So I hope Neville sucks at Inter Miami. I hope he fails. I hope they do badly because people need to realise that he is not a very good coach. Women who've been following, fans who've been following the Lionesses under his tenure knows know that he is a terrible coach and now the men's game is going to continue to suffer because of him. So good riddance to Phil Neville and a big old boot to the male football legacy structure that got him here in the first place. As someone who hates flakes, I endorse that wholeheartedly, Sam. Thank you. Summarised it <laughs> wonderfully. And considering he's someone who really tried to emphasise that, no, the England job was not a stepping stone. Well, uh, looks like it it was, wasn't it? Um, I think the Serena Wagman era can't come soon enough for the Lionesses. And now the next question is what happens for Team GB? And if the Olympics go ahead, there's so many things to happen. But, yes, Sam, top-notch boot from you. I, when we went into the boot, I thought of the, you know, I can't believe it's not butter. But that was like us just running on from the previous topic. Like Dubai chat, that was not a boot. <laughs> I can't believe it's not a boot. Like it anyway. walks like a boot and talks like a boot. <laughs> boot deluxe Boots edition. like a boot. Is it not just one extended boot? <laughs> you know it's a mega boot when it actually moves from the boot chat that we had last week into general chat. That's how you know that you've really fucked up. It's like a promotion. We doubled down on the boot, but it was absolutely necessary. And I suppose speaking of things that are necessary, let's get into somehow goods because we need to brighten the mood in here a lot. So Sam, kick us off with a, a how good. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that one of the things that I've been super into recently is posting gifts of player reactions to goals. Um, it started off, like, funnily enough, in the A-League with Ryan Grant, who I absolutely adore, celebrating a, a ridiculous worldie from uh, Callum Neuenhoff, Sydney FC. Um, but that has sort of continued. Like I, I just love watching teammates celebrate each other and be proud of each other and just be like super stoked at what their colleagues can do on the field. It was really, really fun seeing Ellie Brush from Sydney FC celebrate the goal from, um, from Rachel Lowe. It was really fun seeing uh, the whole team rush over to Grace Ma after she had scored that absolute worldie. It was really fun seeing uh, Brisbane Raw goalkeeper Georgina Worth run up the field to celebrate Minnie's goal. It's like it's just super wholesome. I love seeing all this stuff. I love players celebrating together and just being really stoked to be part of this whole thing. You know, it's, it's such a contrast from what we've been talking about with the FAWSL. All these players are just really, really happy to be here at all. So a big old how good to all the players just being awesome. They've been so, so good. And that Ellie Brush one in particular is, I just think it's the absolute cutest shit. Uh, Harrow, how good? Yeah, I think it's always good to celebrate the milestones in the W League, especially with the seasons being so short. It's so difficult to rack up lots and lots of games. Um, 
So it's great to see players and coaches recognise when they do as much. Um, early in the round, Emily Gildick, um, who we talked about earlier on, played her 100th game in the W League um, in a career that's been across Brisbane Raw and Melbourne Victory. Um, got the draw in that game. And then in the Melbourne Derby, we saw Riley Dobson come off the bench for her 100th W League game. But I think the really wholesome one that we all love to see was Jeff Hopkins um, get his get a win in his 100th W League game as head coach. He is the first coach to 100 games in the W League. He's got a fantastic record across his career, first at Brisbane Raw and then at Victory where he's still hunting a championship but has a premiership plate. So um, congratulations to Emily Gilnick, Raleigh Dobson and Jeff Hopkins. How good. How good, and actually just tacking that on to then Sam's how good. I think Jeff had a particularly good reaction to one of the goals. I don't remember which one because there were so many, but he was just like cackling with joy and it was absolutely very wholesome to see. Angela, how good from you? How good from me? Just a similar theme, I think, from a couple of pods ago, but it's engagement season. Uh, Marta and Tony Presley got engaged Um I think shortly after New Year's Day, around then anyway, and it's just super cute. And they, ah, I love it. And it just, (laughs) it reminded me there's like a picture of, um, from a couple of years ago where Tony Presley is like holding Marta like a baby at Orlando Pride training. And one of my friends, every time she sees a photo of the two of them together, she's like, pick her up anyway it's just real cute I'm really happy for them and there is the Australia connection there as Tony Presley had um a wonderful season with Canberra United um the 2017-18 season I think it was um and yeah just real cute to see that after what's been a pretty weird week to be a Woso fan how good yeah I think that's that's enough from us that's Lots of content for your uh, listening pleasure. So thank you once again for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to us. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to get your Dub of the Pub submissions in. We're at the Far Post Pod on all social media. So make sure you tag us, the account, and hashtag Dub at the Pub as well. And until next week, it's uh, so yes.